1: Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2, Electric Bookaloo. I'm your host Anthony. This week, mathematician Podrick McCarran joins me to talk about another amazing John chapter. We finally make it to Craster's Keep, which brings up all kinds of questions about North of the Wall ritual and the others, and really the endgame of Ice and Fire. Besides Podrick is always game to listen to me talk about my hairbrain theories about such matters. So without further ado, here is Dr. Podrick McCarron. Podrick, I thought I would ask you about a number. A number. A number.
0: Okay, well lucky protein. You you, <laughs> <laughs>
1: you you uh
0: you think about numbers a lot,
1: is my is my guess, right?
0: Well, as a mathematician, people assume that, but I think the further with maths you go, the less you use actual numbers. Ah, so I'd say it's quite rare I use numbers, I use Greek letters far more commonly.
1: Uh-huh, <laughs> very good, very good. Yeah, no, <laughs> let's talk about the sigma. No, um, I'm going to ask you about the number 19. Craster, Craster has 19 wives. Mm-hmm. And I continually see George use this number 19 over and over and over again. And uh, it could be nothing at all, but, you know, just the rundown, there's 19 Targaryen, sc- or there's 19 dragon skulls uh, below the uh, the Red Keep. There's 19 castles along the wall. There's... Uh, Nineteen wives, which I, you know, just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, um, Daenerys Targaryen is the nineteenth claimant to the <laughs> Iron Throne uh, from the Targaryen lineage. Uh, F- Walder Frey has nineteen grandchildren. Hmm. I, it, it just, it's repeated over and over again, and I. I wonder what you make of that. Do you think that there's a symbol there, or is it just like, eh? It's just the it's just kind of a number that popped into George's head over and over.
0: She's of all the theories I've heard, I've never come across this one. Um, yeah, this
1: is this is specific to my own curiosity, <laughs> but you are a professional mathematician, so I thought I'd ask you.
0: Okay, well the only thing that strikes me as the number nineteen is the fact that it is prime. Um oh, okay. but like, you know, there's lots of prime numbers. Yeah. Um I don't I, I don't know. I can't think of any significance of nineteen offhand. But now that you've mentioned it so frequently, uh, without checking some other frequency of numbers make sure it's not just like you know numerology <laughs> uh it's very hard to i mean know, that was my guess is
1: like something along like some sort of symbolic numerology the other option <laughs> i'm just looking this up right now <coughs> is that uh george martin is a huge fan of the new york football giants and i'm wondering if there's a famous number 19 that he loves on that team and i'm i'm looking at all the number 19s in the history of the new york giants and nothing nothing there's no sort of hall of famers that stand out or anything
0: so i think it does have significance in irish mythology um don't remember what but it's something to do with um so the goddess, I uh, suppose, Breed or Bridget. Bridget is like the sort of saint that's supposedly represented. it. something to do with the number 19 there, like a 19-year cycle. But I'd have to look uh, it up to get any more details than that. No, uh, I, I
1: like I like the idea of a cycle. That that seems to be fitting with this. Uh. So, okay, um, here's the other theory, which was I, I posed to another guest on this program, and he said the number 19 sounds like a lot and it also sounds random. <laughs> you know, it's like 20 sounds too round. So if you if you want to say something that is about 20, then you would say 19 because that sounds perfectly random. So maybe that's just a... a maybe it's something that George doesn't even know he's doing.
0: <laughs> yeah, it could be some kind of unconscious thing. Um. Yeah, I've jeez. I mean, I'm trying to think of anything I can think about the number nineteen. And, and like, yeah, it. I did mention that it was a prime number. I don't know if uh, this is how uh, I don't know much about this, but I know it's a sexy prime. <laughs> Say again. It's a sexy prime because it, uh-huh. it differs from another prime by six. So. Uh-huh. Um, oh, very good. <laughs>
1: Very good, very good. But um,
0: I don't know how real that is versus like some stupid (laughs) math joke. Um, (laughs) And yeah, just back to the Irish mythology thing. I'm going to have to look this up and get back to, I think, because um, I do know that when in the george martin's first notes on what he wanted the artist to draw the others look like he mentioned they wanted to look like the She, which are the um the kind of fairy folk in irish mythology mm. um and then 19 is associated with the goddess um breed who'd be sort of associated with fertility oh, um so well, that... i don't know if that's uh just coincidence because there is a lot of like Th- that Anthology. would seem to, those themes
1: would might fit with this chapter, although I don't know how well it would fit with the other 19s that we meet.
0: Yeah, I would say. Yeah, I, I don't know. The skeptic in me wants to just say it's coincidence. And uh-huh. as you said, he just pulled it out, and uh, <laughs> you know, he's just drawn to the number 19. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Sure. Okay. Um,
1: all right. I'm gonna read the um, my synopsis for this chapter, and we can talk. about it. John and the Night's Watch approach Craster's keep. Once inside, John overhears Craster describing Garrett and Will and Waymore Royce. Then Craster reports on Mance Raider's doings, or promises to, and notices that John has the look of a Stark. In the middle of running errands, John encounters a woman who is scared of ghosts. Sam is summoned to draw a map. The next day, John talks again with one of Craster's wives and learns that her name is Gilly. She begs John to help her escape Craster in order to save her son from the cold gods. John refuses her, but later on Sam promises to come back for her. As they are leaving, John asks Mormont about Craster's sons. Mormont confesses that all the rangers know of Craster's ritual exposure of his sons. Apparently Craster offers his male children to crueler gods. Then John learns that Mance is gathering a host of wildlings to strike the Seven Kingdoms.
0: Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings
2: are waiting to your happy place for a happy price go to your happy price price line we're getting geared up for the sixth annual summer badass fest and while we're working on a slate of apex badass films to enjoy we've got an early action-packed announcement to make
1: So, Dr. McCarran, what do you bring to the table today?
0: Well, it's probably one of the first proper mentions of the others, or the White Walkers, and not specifically white for the first time since very early on, really.
1: Yeah, I think that that's important because I think John misunderstands the, the meaning of the blue eyes. Yeah. Gilly talks about You know, how the sons are offered to the cold gods. And, of course, John takes that to mean, oh, I've met one of these. And I think he thinks, well, Craster lied. Craster absolutely knows about the dead coming back to life. But what he doesn't imagine is that the others are actually real and not figments of imagination, I think.
0: Definitely, he's mixing up the whites and the others. Um, Whether he doesn't know the others are real or... Sure. Thinks, I don't know if he's fully... We don't really know what his opinion on this is, really. He'd so know these stories from old Nan, and I think as he's going on, he finds there's more and more truth to mm-hmm. them. So maybe he is he does have some suspicion, but he wouldn't necessarily associate them with having blue eyes, whereas the whites he knows from yes. specifically from Ulther.
1: Yeah. Well, it, it, I think that the primary thing which you're calling out is that it, it really is establishing the stakes for the larger story of Ice and Fire, which really we haven't seen discussed since the prologue of book one, I think. Yeah,
0: indeed, yeah.
1: There has been talk of the others, of course, but um this I think that they're closer to it here than they ever have been.
0: Yeah, indeed. And it's hard to be uh not swayed by the show as well. Because in the show, we're explicitly shown uh, Craster sacrificing, not sacrificing, but giving babies to the White Walkers, as they're known in the show, and then taking this and turning it into a new White Walker. Yeah. That's Whereas cool. here, because he's also sacrificing sheep, we don't know if he is just making these offerings and there's some kind of ritual sacrifice and they die, or whether the White Walkers take them and need some humans or whether they are actually indeed turning them into more others.
1: Yes, you get the more of a sense that there's some sort of ritualistic aspect here because what does Mormont say it's like for him it's like a prayer or an offering. And they're yeah. they're explicitly called gods a few times in this chapter. And Craster calls himself a godly man. Yeah. So, there is a sense here that this is this is almost a religious uh ceremony that's being done, but we don't of course show difference we don't you know John never sees a another mm. we we only hear tell of what happens to the boys um of course, with a show, you wanna show not tell right so yeah and and of course you know it's it's nice to be reminded every now and again that there are actual others in the world, right?
0: Yeah. What are the others to you? What do you believe the others are? Do you believe they're like in the show that they're just some kind of, I don't know, Borg-like enemy? (laughs) (laughs) Or do you think they're another race?
1: I mean, I've heard interviews with George about this, and he's basically said, you know, there's sort of avatars for winter. And then I was talking with Elio Garcia, who helped write, uh, you know, World of Ice and Fire. Mm. And he said that the others probably don't have a culture because they, you know, they are just sort of a representation of, you know, some some kind of elemental force. And to me, I feel like that's uh, a little bit unsatisfying.
0: Yeah, especially considering how we were introduced to them, which was they were communicating and they had like, their armor was described in detail. They have, you know, distinct weapons. At mm-hmm. one point, um, Waymar Rice thinks they're laughing, mm-hmm. which he described as something like, you know, cracking of a lake or something like this. So I always envisage them as like an alien-like race. Interesting. Until the show, which changed my mind to, well, I don't know if that's what's going to happen in the books, but. They're created from, as a weapon. They're a weapon. They're a biological weapon, yeah. and I suppose they're like to ice what dragons are to fire. They're some kind of a means to an end. If like, if dragons are an analogy for nukes, uh, I don't know, um, the others are an analogy for some other kind of, I don't know, biological warfare or something like this.
1: Well, that's funny. I think that. I mean I I kind of read this as an allegory for you know sort of a world ending climate problem you know it's you know winter is coming and the others bring winter with them and and I've I've always kind of seen them in that way although I will say that you said that when Martin wanted them drawn you said that they are supposed to look like you know, the great fairies from Irish lore. Is that is that what you said?
0: Yeah, he, so they're called A-she, which is uh, spelled like, uh, well, there's a few different spellings, but it's like two words. It's like A-O, um, maybe it's A-O-D-H, I think. And then the second word is she, it's just S-I, an accent on the I, and then D-H-E. Okay. So um, the she would be like, you know, part of the Irish word for fairy, so like ban she is like a female fairy. Uh-huh, uh uh-huh. uh um, Ban being a woman, and she being the fairy. Um, So they're that's how we describe them for the artist now that could just be because that's the image he had in his head for them and not that Mm -hmm. he wants to base them on some kind of uh like in Irish mythology they would be live in the other world Mm -hmm. and I mean I think the term fairy might be more we associate fairies now with like sort of you know pixies small magic wands and wings and stuff yeah Uh, as in Irish mythology they would be some kind of sometimes malevolent other times benevolent um often gods or at least uh godlike creatures and they live in the other worlds sometimes they would be like akin to traditional gods like there's what a god of the sea mm-hmm. other times just be like uh mischievous beings with magical powers
1: now yeah and they also you know at times they they do remind me a bit of the jotunheim in that um from sort of Norse mythology because uh they're called gods and they kind of function as, you know, sort of these supernatural beings and from beyond the edge of the world.
0: Mm.
1: And, you know, then, of course, you've got the tree mythology and, you know, all of that business. So I I don't know if I mean, I think with a lot of things, George draws from various traditions
0: Indeed, yeah. And, he wouldn't focus on one, for sure.
1: Yeah, creates hybrids out of these things. Um, but I, I will point out that, you know, the show has them creating, like, artwork out of human appendages and whatnot. <laughs> that that would suggest, you know, art or symbol or something that would bespeak a culture, but the the books do not do that. So it, we have very little to go on besides these sort of ritual offerings to, you know, that, that Craster is giving.
0: Yeah, giving his males and giving his sheep. And then, again, like, what do you think he's doing? Do you think he's putting these babies out and then they die of the cold and somehow this is an offering to the winter, so they leave them alone? Or do you think they're actually taking these babies and sheep?
1: Right, I think... Hmm. Okay, so I mean, there's a few interesting fan theories about this that I should probably call out. And one is one prominent fan theory is that you know the others have this deal with the first men, and this is part of the deal and part of the agreement is you you know you bring us offerings, mm. and and we will stay in our territory or something like that. Yeah. I feel like that kind of places too much importance on Craster. For yeah. the narratively, I think it puts too much on Craster, and I think that this is just maybe a this is maybe an agreement that Craster has with the others so that he remains safe. So the so then the question is, are these offerings turned into White Walkers? Mm, yeah, my sense is that they're not my sense is that they are being eaten or they there's some sort of blood magic that has to happen uh, to appease the blood. Wa- the, the, the White Walkers in the same way that, you know, that Danny's child was used as as blood magic um, on the fire side of things. So, I mean, but of course I don't have a lot to go on here. So I'm just, this is just my sense. What do you think? Um,
0: I think the show has swayed me a bit to think they are almost like some kind of weapon of the children of the forest to fight Mm. against the first men, because if they're the children of the forest are also north of the wall, the remaining ones we know of. Mm. So it doesn't make that much sense if the wall is to protect the children of the forest and mortals from, or sorry, humans, or the Andals from the others, with the fact that the Children of the Forest are north of the wall is slightly suspicious. As the crafter, I, I just kind of think, like, how did he figure this out? You know, he's been there for a long time. He must have had a few winters. This is seemingly going to be the longest one for a while. How did he figure out that, OK, if I leave my male babies out there, that the others will leave me alone? Well, that again goes back to there must be some kind of like discussion or, you know, he must have some someone must have told him this or he must have some communication with the others.
1: Well, we don't know. I mean, we hear rumors about where Craster came from, but we don't really know his origin. It could be that he is part of a long tradition of doing this. and Maybe he's like the last vestige of, of a culture. Or it's possible that the rumors are true and he's just, you know, the bastard uh, son of uh, a crow and a wildling. And he's sort of set up shop of his own accord. If it's the former, he doesn't necessarily have to have a conversation with the others to figure out what the agreement is because he's just following an ancient ritual. Okay. But if it's the latter, he has to have had some kind of communication, right?
0: Okay, and I guess it probably is the former because he sees John and he goes, he looks like a Stark. So how would a the <laughs> son of a wildling and a crow know the look of a Stark so well without having <laughs> some other, uh, I don't know, backstory or history? That was quite, um, you know... For want of a better word, that was quite a stark moment, right?
1: Yes, I, and I think that I mean that brings me to a different topic of conversation. But let me, I mean, let, let's let's wrap up this one first. Do you feel? Do you feel like these others? Do you feel like there's any statement in this chapter on their intentionality? I mean, do, do you feel that this reveals enough about them to know what they what they're after?
0: No, but it—I felt it meant there was some connection between them and the Starks because it's reminded again that Benjen mm-hmm. was went out with two others, both of whom died somewhat unnaturally and were brought back. Craster hasn't seen Benjen, but he had seen Waymar Royce and Will and Garrett. and then Craster immediately recognizes John as being a Stark, mm-hmm. which makes my head. Think that there's some connection between the Starks yeah. and the others, <laughs>
1: right? Right, and I will just note that if, if you know, for folks that either have forgotten or didn't know the difference, um, in the books, we've had no reveal of a Night King. Um, there's you know, the, the others don't seem to have a, a commander, there's no sort of big baddie, there's no suggestion that if you kill. You know, the, the the big boss and all of the minions will fall. We just don't have any of that in, in the books. And, and of course, you know, John does not actually see another in this particular
0: chapter. And we don't find out anything for uh, quite a while. Another something like 20 chapters, and uh, we'll encounter them. But then again, we we'll probably don't encounter them again for quite a long time.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I will say that I always felt a little bit dissatisfied with that little device. It it felt to me, and I think that they do this in Return of the King as well, because um, that's not it's not in any of the, the the Lord of the Rings books. Is that you know if you kill Sauron, then you know his minions will scatter because the the spell is broken or something. Um and they, I feel like they they borrowed that for the show and I feel like it's just sort of a, a lazy device to like ha- have a, a one climactic moment.
0: Yeah, and it's been done to death in recent cinema and yeah. Netflix, Star Wars, everything. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Absolutely. So, I mean, and who knows if George will write a better ending? Um there, there's no guarantee <laughs> who knows if George will write an ending. <laughs> <laughs> At this point, we would just take an ending. Um, so, anyway, I, I I do want to talk about this other um, matter of civility uh, uh, beyond the
0: wall. Mm. Uh, yes, indeed.
1: All right. So there's there's a couple indications that you know that the people north of the wall know a bit about what sort of southern culture is like. Um, you know the the, the Stark stuff. And then Gilly knows about kind of the relationship between kings and vassals, mm. um, and there is the mention of guest right, which seems to be a big deal,
0: especially in northern houses. Mm-hmm. Or okay, that's right to the neck, maybe. And also, <laughs> Craster show Craster throws
1: a little bit of shade on on John because he's a bastard. <laughs> He's like you know I have always I always thought if you're gonna bet a woman you should marry her you know and of course he's he's married 19 of his daughters so and there's a there's a suggestion that uh you know that here John is John's this this uh, result of sexual taboo and and so Craster has this kind of judgy he's a little bit judgy um yeah. and so the hints of. Civility beyond the wall, but then you've got all the rumors of how savage they are, and I think that Craster in many ways is maybe even worse than some of the savages that they've been told about in the stories, but he does not absolutely look like a half-breed monster or something, he's just a horrible person morally.
0: Yeah, Craster is like, you know, on paper, one of the worst people we meet in the story. Mm -hmm. He... Sacrifices all of his male sons to gods. So well, what he considers gods, and he marries his own daughters and has, I guess, granddaughters/slash daughters with them. And on paper, he's easily one of the worst characters we meet. Like you know, Parrot Ramsey maybe. But then, when you when he talks and when he's there, he's quite like almost compelling or something. You know, you want to hear more of what he has to say. Uh, so he, he's interestingly done. Like, I didn't find myself hating him as much as I know I should, unlike Ramsey or the Mountain.
1: <laughs> well, this brings up a very interesting problem for Mormont. Because at the end of this chapter, it's revealed that Mormont knows what all of the rangers know, that Craster is marrying his daughter's And ritually sacrificing his sons, and he actually uses the phrase crueler gods, Mm -hmm. um, suggesting, now not necessarily that Mormont knows about the others, but he knows about this human sacrifice ritual. And this is who the Night's Watch has chosen to ally with.
0: But he gives a pretty good justification, doesn't he? Like, how long have they been out at this point? They've passed through four villages and seen nobody. Uh-huh. This is their first uh, shelter. He gives them food. He said he's enough uh, meat and beer for twenty men. You know, when if you are ranging that far north and the wildlings are your enemy, anybody who'll put you up and give you information and feed you—that uh, seems pretty good, despite how cruel and awful they are. And as Mormon says, it's not. Really, their problem. That's not that's not their war. What Craster does, Craster yeah. does right. And I think
1: okay, so yes, and and that's the utility of it, right? Mm. I guess just on the surface of it, the Nights Watch believes their vow is to protect the South against these wildlings. That's a that's how they interpret their vow.
0: Yeah,
1: I can't imagine that there's a wildling worse than Craster. <laughs> You know, like even, even Fens who like eat each other. I, I just, I think that grass is doing a lot worse than any, anyone else in the, uh, up North, but that's their ally. I just, it's, and I think that you get a little, there's this little pause. Mormont actually shows a tiny bit of, I don't know if it's shame or what it is, but it's a little moment where John asks them, Hey, did you know about this? And did did my Uncle Benjen know about this? And Mormont pauses, and then he answers. And I, I read that as Mormont knows that this is morally dubious. It's like, I know I have to make a deal with this guy in order to keep us alive, in order to, you know to keep us ranging north, but I know this guy is pretty bad.
0: Yeah, so he knows it's morally dubious. He knows it's wrong. But he feels that it's an ally. He, they're, they're trying to protect uh, South of the Wall from wilding invasion. And they have to ally with awful people to do that. Well, mm-hmm. then that's what they will do. And I don't think he. Um, I think you're right, absolutely right. He knows that this is wrong. He knows that this is uh, a, a terrible thing. But uh, it's the sort of lesser of the evils in his view, simply because he, he's terrified of Mance Raiders. Uh, move, from, and he, and as he says to John, this is the best time for him to go because now the north is unprotected. Any time they have got uh south of the wall, they've always lost at Winterfell, and now there's nobody in the north.
1: So this um this whole plot above the wall has a lot of parallels to like old police television or old police movies. In that, you know, the Nights Watch are kind of like the detectives. And they have to make alliances with, you know, shady people. You know, Craster's a little bit like the informant who's committing crime himself, but, you know, is is sort of a necessary evil. Um, And then, you know, at one point, John kind of goes undercover and so he's got that sort of undercover cop story and he he, he falls in love with you know you know you got yeah. you got that whole business about where are your allegiances um mm-hmm. because you've kind of come to understand the people that you've been scouting out and i don't know i think that there's some affinities here with crime drama
0: yeah that's true never you thought about it that way i suppose the big difference here though is that the wildlings are not really criminals right they're not evil so i guess in a lot of the police uh shows where someone does go undercover yeah they actually are trying to catch that gang whereas here it turns out the wildlings are actually just trying to escape as well and, yeah uh, the, they know the what you're going to stop them
1: yeah right no yeah the police are just as bad as anyone else <laughs> um so i want to i want to talk a little bit about another moment of civility north of the wall Gilly's been watching John, and she's noticed that he didn't sleep under Craster's roof
0: Mm.
1: or take any of his food. And for her, this is significant because it would not be taboo for him to steal something of Craster's. And in this case, steal her and her baby. Yeah, I, I feel like I'm reading that in a way that, like, like, she really takes the guest right taboo seriously, and that, and because he has not done those things, he is an escape hatch in a way that maybe someone else is not.
0: Yeah, I fully agree. It's thought the same thing. It reminds me a little bit of um, The Red Wedding, which happens a lot later, but with this cat insisting that Rob immediately eat food mm-hmm. when he gets the twins, so that that way nobody would consider risking. A violating guest right that's like that's nearly as bad as being a kinslayer in the yeah. society i presume it's such a significant thing it's uh, so frequently mentioned that it has to have some significance later there has to be some i don't know curse or something on people who do violate this because it i mean it just seems like a fairly bizarre thing to just have as a custom if it never has any consequences i mean it's fine for it to be custom but for it to be so frequently mentioned you know
1: well and of course i think that um i mean it could be a world-building tactic because you know this this actually was a very ancient ritual of hospitality um so it could just sort of be a way to add flavor to a world to give it a more ancient sensibility but it, it reminds us of the taboo so that we understand the red wedding a bit better, right? Mm. In the same way that the, you know the, the story of the, the rat king reminds us of that ritual, so that the, the plot twist at the red wedding works.
0: I feel like it has to have a little bit more though if it's just that and then walter Frey still violates it and that's it it seems a bit like it's a bit of a letdown isn't it it's like oh, <laughs> this tradition they held is actually for nothing <laughs> <laughs> yes. i feel like it has to have some payoff All right, like i i get what you're saying that it just adds flavor to it and it's like some custom mm-hmm. in the society but there are lots of customs in society and to me this one is really really hammered home yeah. um to make it just seems like it would be strange if it didn't have some... Uh, if it wasn't called back later on. But I don't know how it will be. But um, yeah, that's, Gilly saying that to John, that was quite... Um, again, it was quite like on the nose, wasn't mm-hmm. it?
1: Yeah. And I, I probably also should say that uh, in the world of Ice and Fire, I already mentioned Elio earlier, but, uh, you know, George is listed as a co-author on that book and Mm. in that book it is stated that northern culture takes guest right much more seriously than southern culture yeah and so the phrase maybe don't have the, the same sort of taboo structure around that ritual
0: yeah, I was thinking that, but then it's it's Cat who is very yeah. worn about her and she's from the Riverlands. So, uh-huh. I do think it is more of a northern thing, but um it seems to be common in Yeah, at least as well. yeah,
1: at least Kat believes in it, right? And 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 at least they're practicing even though maybe they don't believe it as fervently uh or maybe there isn't a, a, a strong of a taboo associated with it. There's, they are still practicing it in the south, right? So,
0: yeah, in principle. <laughs>
1: in principle. <laughs> <yeah>. um. Uh, <laughs> Mormon, when Mormon's describing what happened with the whites at Castle Black, he kind of puts he, he, he sort of puts words to something that I feel like was inferred before and that is that the two men that came back to life went directly for the 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 commanders of the institution yeah and so that this is true. for Mormont it says so they must have had some kind of memory of their previous life but now you know there, that memory is sort of put in service to some sort of malicious intent
0: yeah it's yeah it was strange he said memory because it it does imply like more some kind of um yeah as you say that memory was used then to try and take out the command Um the way he said memory made me think like oh there's the author hate you know the little bear is that why he, <laughs> he, he went for an attack with uh-huh. him um but no, I think you're right. I think um this was something I think we did this chapter actually back in um a year ago or so. Um I think we discussed this that like him going specifically for yeah, uh the old That's yeah.
1: right. And and I think, th- you know, if you didn't catch it in that previous chapter, Mormont kind of names it in this chapter. It it does bring up some interesting questions about what kind of zombies we're actually dealing with. Um I don't know what to think about the I don't I don't really know what a white is in this world. I, I've seen a, a couple things that they've done, but for me they're just as mysterious as the others.
0: Yeah, I mean to me I've always assumed they're some kind of entity just controlled by the others. Um, and I, Martin loves this idea of a hive mind, doesn't he? So um, it comes up in a lot of his other works. So I feel like, you know, maybe they do have some kind of hive mind and that these are like their drones or something like this.
1: Yeah, but not I've so lived. much that they couldn't, uh, not so much that they they don't know the layout of Castle Black and they know who's in charge and who would be the the most advantageous figure to kill, right? All of that is now put in service to the hive mind if that's what's going on.
0: Yeah, they've been assimilated, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, the, um, the Borg. <laughs> <laughs> but it, that, it, that is kind of what it, it reminds me of a little bit. Have you ever read um Raymond E. Feist's Magician? No, trilogy? I have not. Um, so when I first read uh, Song of Ice and Fire, this reminded me of, I think the second book is called *Silverthorn*, and there is sort of uh, dead in that who also have intent. They're not like... Zombies. And I was thinking about this recently when I was reading um, some of the John chapters and I looked it up. It was 1985 that was written. So I do feel like when Martin came up with this idea, I would I would imagine he was influenced by uh, this Raymond De Feist book. Hmm. And in, in that as well, there are also fire is like they're, you know, you touch them with fire and they like combust immediately. Now it's around 20 years since I've read it, so I've forgotten the details. But I do remember fire being one of their uh, hmm. weaknesses. It wasn't like um, a bit like in the show, like once fire touches a white, they almost immediately combust. It's not like they—they uh, they actually their clothes catch fire or anything. Um, so it did remind me of, uh, of this, and I think at the time as well, like zombies are done to death now, especially the last twenty years. Yeah. Whereas when Martin would have come up with this, uh, they were still a little bit new and shocking. Um, no not—it's not like the Romero zombies. It's a bit more like some kind of control zombies sure so i think um I, I don't really like referring to the whites as zombies because they do seem to have some kind of agency and they're not like in most zombies really what they're trying to do is like either feed or like procreate by like you know infecting other people yeah 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 uh whereas these whites aren't really doing that at least author wasn't anyway in terms of trying to uh to kill the commander and whites we meet later on as well, they're just like kind of, they're like the infantry for uh, the others.
1: Was there anything else that you noticed about this chapter that you wanted to call out?
0: Uh, just back to the guest right thing briefly, um, it was also, it, John was like really annoyed with Sam for, getting Gilly to talk to him and he even says <laughs> to Mormont about having like you know Sam's got a big he's big boned or something but he's also got a massive heart Yeah, and it's like you know but what could he have done like you know, what does he expect me to be able to do here we're going north how am I going to like bring this woman back but uh, I just thought it was funny how he wakes up in the morning and he sees like uh, it's been really heavy frost the whole everything looks so beautiful covered in frost and he thinks of how like Sansa would start crying when she sees this and then Arya would be like outplaying uh-huh. it and then Gilly comes up to him and him this, and then John's in foul form, and he blames her initially, and then he goes, I, you know, thrice damn Sam or something yeah, like That's this. right, <laughs> that's right. And um, I will note that
1: even though he's pissed off that he's been sort of put upon for something that doesn't seem possible, and he's pissed off at Sam for suggesting it, he decides not to eat... Craster's food. Yeah, that's where I was going. And and it's almost like he's made a decision. I I wanna leave myself an I I wanna leave myself the option to save this girl if I have the chance.
0: Yeah, that's why I said just back to Guess right briefly, because that was uh again quite telling. John was really annoyed about this, but partly we know John's character and we know he's annoyed because yeah. now he feels like almost obligated to do something here. Yeah. And therefore, um he doesn't know how he's going to do it and then when he talks to sam he's really annoyed at him and sam is going yeah but i was thinking maybe we can think about this when we go north and then come back (laughs) so um and he's i I know we know that john is also annoyed because he's also probably thinking that he's like right how do we save this person how do we save her baby how do we get Mm -hmm. her out of this awful situation Mm -hmm. um so i thought that was quite interesting and again very like john is probably one of the more like moral characters we have Mm -hmm. Uh, and again, he 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 develops a lot over the course of the series. Um, he will definitely do things he would consider morally dubious that his younger self would have. But um, you know, he's got a very strong sense of what he believes is right, and that this should be acted on. And I feel like he's grown up a bit. Um,
1: in that you don't hear a lot and in his interior world. He doesn't seem. You don't hear a lot about like about his own suffering. Um, it's almost like Yeah. It's almost like he's in his he's finally in his natural habitat up north of the wall. You know, he's he's really concerned like I hope the I hope the bear finds something out. Or mm. I, I I really I really want to do right by this girl or I'm trying to figure out what would be the moral approach to dealing with someone like Craster and maybe something that my father said would help me figure out how to deal with this man honorably. You don't hear a lot of his own sort of like sullen, like, woe is me kind of stuff that we got in the first book.
0: Yeah. And even in maybe it was either the last John chapter or the previous one, when, um, Mormon is talking to him about Rob being King now and you're a brother of a King. And, um, He asks him what he's going to do, and John just says, "Well, be troubled," which the Mormon is saying, you know, he will be. Um, So he's very much accepted it. But uh, I think becoming Mormon steward has changed his view of the wall or due the night's watch a lot. He's uh, much more involved in the sort of uh, internal politics now, and I think he feels like he's making a difference. Whereas when he just started there and he was training with. People who were quite useless, mm. and he saw the state of the Night's Watch. I think that was a lot more of why there was so much of woe as me. Mm. Whereas now he's got a purpose, and he's got—he's uh, also got a mystery. He wants to find Benjen. He's—he's um, hmm. he's much more driven now than he was. Yeah,
1: another, of course, another mention to Benjen.
0: Yeah, Benjen is mentioned a lot.
1: <laughs> Notable introductions in this chapter. Um, we hear the hear about the gods beyond the wall. We hear them called gods. I think for the first time. We hear about the Frostfangs for the first time, we hear about uh, Joramun and the Horn of Winter for the first time in this chapter, and of course we meet Gilly in this chapter. Um, Differences in the... differences between the show and this chapter, there's actually quite a, a lot of differences. You know, John sees another in the show, that doesn't happen... John's very angry and confrontational with Craster, suggesting a bit of immaturity that sort of needs to be corrected. Mm. Whereas I think this chapter shows John to be a bit more mature uh, than that. And I thought it was interesting in the show, they decide to make Craster's wives seem almost like a cult yeah and they start they start chanting in a way that sort of you know bespeaks you know a, a common worship in the others or something in the show, and that doesn't really happen in the books,
0: well, we only have one really who we've in the interaction with the other yeah that's right eighteen are there, but barely mentioned that's right, and some of them are very young as well uh-huh yeah yeah yeah. Um... Where, where does Croster get his information, by the way? So he heard <laughs> that Garrett lost his head. Yeah. And I was like, how did he hear this information? So, like, that was seemingly they were the last, mm-hmm. uh, Will Garrett and William Royce were the last Night's Watchmen he met. So, like, yeah, how did he find this information out?
1: <laughs> yeah, it, that's a good question. And, um, I mean, unless he did have contact with Benjen... You know, maybe he's
0: lying like he's about. Lying? That's one of the few. Uh, that's one of the only real possibilities. That, or he could potentially be a warg, or he has more to do with the other wildlings than he. He was lying about that. Maybe he just didn't want to join Mance. But, but then he also took the tongue out of Mance's. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 well, we know that Mance so.
1: sneaks south to Winterfell um, yeah. on occasion. It would it would suggest that maybe there's a bit more traffic, um, through sort of cracks in the wall than is known about. I mean that that's another option. I I mean maybe Mance's servant who he took his tongue. Maybe that he he blabbed or something. It's
0: it Just is a good many question. How people know that Garrett died as well? So that's mm-hmm. why it kind of leads me back to uh, Benjen because Benjen. A night's match person obviously would know about mm-hmm. this. Um, and just one final thing, I suppose I have in this chapter. Like, what is your view in the Great Range, and what is Mormont's plan? Now, what is he even thinking now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why? Why? Um, yeah. I mean,
1: I think that Mormont views his task as I am responsible for keeping this. You know, these savages up north at bay. And then now there's just strange doings above the wall. And I cannot be in the dark. I cannot know nothing about what's going on. So what is, what's the mystery of Benjen? What's the mystery of the, the men who come back to life? What's the mystery of the deserted villages? These all have to be related to some doings that I need to know about. And so maybe it's like okay, I'm gonna go find out for myself, and uh, and given the sort of the nature of these clans, no one's gonna mess with two hundred of two hundred strong of a, of a search party, in the way that Benjen, you know, maybe you know, if I just send a couple rangers up there to find out, I might I might not ever see them again. I'm gonna take two hundred men.
0: I think initially, yeah, I fully agree with that. And I think I've often seen people criticize the great ranging, you know, online and stuff. I think initially at the end of Game of Thrones, it does seem like a good idea. He's like, these last two groups of rangers, first Weimar Royce, that was quite a strange one. Only one of them came back mm. and was uh, spooked beyond belief. And, he
1: was, and then he, sent- he was cuckoo when he came back.
0: Exactly, yeah. And then he sends Benjamin, uh, who was much more seasoned than Weimar and... Two of his men come back mm-hmm. dead, mm-hmm. But like whites, and Benjamin has disappeared with no notion. So I understand why a larger force makes sense. And at this point, at that point, he wouldn't have known that the wildlings are gathering. But now that he's met Craster, and Craster has told him that the wildlings are gathering the Frostfang Mountain, and he says to John that this is the best time for wildling invasion because the north is empty and the wall is still last standing, why does he not go back to the wall? You know, if his massive fear now and his reason for going to the Fist of First Men, as far as I can understand, is they're going to make a stand against the Wildlings. But if there's thousands of Wildlings and two hundred of them, surely the wall is much more defensive. Well,
1: he doesn't know until this chapter that the Wildlings are gathering. Like he, he knows yeah, so how he many knows there that. are, but in historically, these clans have never been able to join together, and so that that, that actually makes. 200 men a very formidable force because you're never going to encounter more than one clan at a time.
0: Yeah, before this chapter I agreed, but now yeah. that he crasters <laughs> given us information. Why not like why not the, just go with home. this information? Yeah, exactly. Or why not Yeah, with this information it seems madness mm-hmm. to keep going. I mean the best he can offer is a small bit more information and then try and take them on.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. Mormont always is a little bit, he's, he always presents as a little bit nefarious to me. Like what does he actually know? Um, he always seems to know a little bit more about what's going on up North than he should. Uh, I, I just I don't know I really I'm really not sure if you can trust Mormont.
0: Um, okay, I, I, that, that's I just, I...
1: just just my head cannon on this one.
0: I I've always uh, simply because of his relationship with John and how even at the end as John knows he shouldn't be asking some questions but Mormont explicitly says no ask whatever you want. Hmm. I, I feel like. Um, I feel like you can trust Mormont, and I feel like you're right, he does have more information than we expect him to know, mm-hmm. but as a good lord commander should, I suppose. <laughs> but I, I do feel like we can trust him. I just feel like now that he knows the wildlings are gathering, it seems madness to keep going north, unless he's got like unless there's something specific he wants to find at the Fisted mm-hmm. First Man or he's expecting more information, it seems crazy to keep going now. Obviously he's he's not expecting to be attacked by Whites or others. Mm-hmm. That was uh, something he couldn't have... Uh, I mean, he could possibly have expected, but he wouldn't necessarily have expected. Um, but even with the Wildlings gathering, if he thinks they're going to launch an attack, which is what he thinks, not that they're trying to flee, uh, I just don't really understand what yeah, he's... I don't know in, either. ...what he's thinking right now.
1: I don't know either. Um, just because uh, uh, I have gotten into the habit of this, I feel like I need to call out what Mormont's Raven says. Alright? So oh, yes. he's i
0: he's, wonder should we discuss the raven. He says wall.
1: <laughs> he says slave. He says king five times mm. he says corn once and then he uh j- just makes a regular Raven sound. So I don't know if any of those mean anything, but uh taking it upon myself to document this <laughs> And so I've done my duty.
0: Am I correct in saying that one of the times he says king is when John appears? Or is that just when they're actually mm-hmm. talking about? Maybe they're talking about um, about Rob, though. That's definitely... what they mean to say, right?
1: What is, is the subtext uh, that because John's in the room, he's the rightful king? Hmm, interesting. Good question.
0: Yeah, the Raven always, at least um, after my first read, what the Raven says always uh, puzzles me, but interests me. I'm like, is there some meaning? And I always wonder. Now that we know like what Hodor means, I'm also thinking, does corn mean something different, right? Is the Raven like? Cause as soon as John comes in, he says corn. It's like he hardly expects John to bring him corn, does he? Maybe he does, but uh, I'm wondering, is this actually something else? Like, you know, uh, John is actually like Corran Targaryen was supposed to be his name or something like this. You know? yeah,
1: he, it's it's for his coronation. Uh, that's that's the. Oh uh, yeah. Okay. yeah <laughs> His crown will be made of barley. And now Throwback Thursday with comic Steve Osborne. And Lord Mormont's interesting to me because he clearly knows. He knows about the White Walkers. Yep. And he knows that Craster's been offering his sons as sacrifices or something to the White Walkers. Right. But he's At a minimum, s- he knows he's killing his sons and it's helping Yes, and he is more concerned about the wildlings beyond the wall, who are humans. So I'm having difficulty understanding Lord Mormont's motives. Yeah, maybe the monsters are uh, there. There, there are clearly ways to sate them, right? And yeah, give him, him a, give him a baby, and, and and you you get a free pass or whatever. It's oh yeah yeah. You're saying that he's happy with the peace arrangement that they've got. Right. So for whatever, like it doesn't even matter almost that they're monsters. It's like they're an obstacle that can be averted. And the Craster component is just like, it's its a factory. It's a factory mm-hmm. that churns out a piece with the monsters, essentially. Every single one of those Craster boys was going to grow up to be a dictator. That's <laughs> the greater good. It's, yeah, it's maybe, maybe the greater the, good. Maybe the monsters have an incredible private school system and they're raising these boys up and they're mm-hmm. becoming great scholars and we don't know <laughs> i mean not yet anyway i didn't see one eat a
2: baby